This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. You know, I'm not sure anything reveals our selfish, self-centered nature quite like traffic congestion. Amen? I think it's true whether you're stuck on a Kennedy or whether you're stuck at a train crossing for a train or the double train or the dreaded triple crossing train. It's true whether you're hitting every red light on the way to wherever you're going. And it is most definitely true when we get to that roundabout down the road on golf, when you're sitting behind a car that just won't go. I don't know what they're waiting on. It's like they're waiting for a green light that's never going to come. And it was really true of me earlier this week. I was headed down golf, headed home from work, and there's two lanes. And I'm in the right lane because I'm about to turn right. And right before I get to the stoplight, somebody from the left lane jumps in front of me. And I'm like, okay, no big deal. He's just doing that because he forgot he's going to turn. No! He went from the left lane to the right lane and had the audacity to stop at the stoplight because he was going to go through it. Oh, Exactly! Don't we all know the unwritten rule that if you're going straight, you get in the left lane, not the right lane, so that those of us making a right turn can turn on red? Amen. All oh, God's drivers said that. That car made me like 30 seconds late for where I was going. It still bothers me. But our response to something getting in our way and disrupting our lives, it reveals what we really think of ourselves, doesn't it? That we are the most important and that our time is the most valuable. That we are the center of our own universe that everything else revolves around. It is all about pursuing my preferences, satisfying my desires and defending my rights with everyone living according to my schedule. It is all about me, with next to no consideration for how the way we live might impact others, for the good of others. And that way of living resembles the American dream, right, of of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness at all costs by any means necessary, far more than it resembles the way of Jesus. Because see, when we look at the way of the world, We see a way of arrogance and self-centeredness that only brings about conflict and division. But when we look at the way of Jesus, we see humility that brings about unity, willingly setting aside our preferences, foregoing our desires and laying down our rights, all for the good of one another and for the glory of God. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we continue making our way through this letter that Paul wrote Uh, to the church in Philippi, this Macedonian city of Philippi, as we enter into chapter two, we're gonna see that the way of Jesus is a way of humility that seeks the good of one another and the glory of God, isn't it? That's ultimately what the way of Jesus is about. And Paul's gonna show us here in this passage by reminding us in the first half of the passage of, of who it is that we are called to be as followers of Jesus and how it is we are called to live. And then in the second half of the passage, showing us an example of what this humility looks like and what enables to live out this life of humility that brings about unity. And so Paul, he begins here in the beginning of chapter two with an if-then statement. And the the idea, the the point that he's making is that if these things in verse one are true of you, of, of who it is you are called to be as followers of Christ, not, not just individually, but, 
but collectively, the plural you, together as a church, if these things in verse one are true of you, then what follows in verses two through four should also be true of how you live your lives together. And so look down here with me with the, with the if statement here in verse one. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, we'll get to the then in just a little bit, but for this if statement, I love, I love the Trinitarian nature of this if statement. This, uh, this idea of our sense of belonging and identity and purpose. Finding our sense of belonging in the Son, finding our sense of identity in the Father, and finding our sense of purpose in the Spirit. He says, if, if you feel this sense of peace and comfort that comes with, with being united together in Christ, right? both united with God and united to one another, knowing that this is where you belong, and if you have experienced the love of the Father, Right, secure in your identity as his beloved child, knowing that this is who you are. And if you are actively participating in the work of the Spirit, exercising the gifts of the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, giving your life purpose, knowing this is why you exist, if this stirs any affection in you whatsoever, if this stirs any compassion towards others, caring about the well-being of others as it should, then this should impact the way that we live, he goes on to say. He says in verse two, complete my joy, right? Fill me with joy, even as I write to you from a prison cell, because what Paul desires for them more than anything is for them to live out this calling, living in humility, living in unity. And he gives us three ways to live this out here. Number one, he says, Live this out by being of the same mind, by, by being of one mind. And you're like, how are we gonna do that? Like, if you ever, you ever go out for brunch after church and you're like, you're going with a group of people and you're like, you can't even figure out where you're gonna go together. If we can't agree on that, how are we gonna grant anything? Uh, there's a reason that a lot of large groups end up going to places like the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, because if you can't find something to eat in that Leo Tolstoy-sized menu, like, I don't know what to do for you. But Paul's not saying here that we have to agree about everything about everything. He's not saying that we're not able to have our own personal preferences and, and views and opinions because I think what we know to be true is that there's not always one right answer, is there? Things aren't always right and wrong. There's not always a good guy and bad guy in every conflict because life is rarely that simple. Life instead is lived in the infinite shades of gray rather than the black and white, isn't it? And even when there is one right answer, and there are times there is one right answer, even still there are shades of gray because there's not always one right way to arrive at the answer. Old math, new math. And there's not always one right way to apply the answer. See, we, we, we all think differently, don't we? We think differently, we see the same situation differently from different vantage points with different perspectives, having had very different experiences. And those things, they shape the way that we think about the world. They shape the way that we see the world. But rather than viewing those differences as weaknesses, as obstacles to be overcome, we should see them as a strength. Our, our different perspectives and experiences allowing us to see a more complete picture. Right? Others seeing what you are unable to see. 
And our different ways of of thinking allow us to gain a, a more complete understanding with others comprehending what you might find confusing. But that requires humility, doesn't it? It requires humility to listen to those with a different perspective. It requires humility to learn from those with different experiences. And yet, that's exactly what it means for us to be of the same mind, to be of one mind. By setting our minds on the same thing, right? Heading in the same direction, towards the same goal, the same purpose, with the same end in mind. And that, we know to be true, is to live for the glory of God and the good of one another, isn't it? It means to set our minds on the same thing, and it means to view everything through the same lens, that lens being Scripture, God's revealed Word revealing who it is that he is, what it is that he has done, and all that he has promised to do, revealing to us how we are to respond and to live in community with him, with one another, and with all of creation, right? God's word shaping our minds and guiding our lives. We are to be of the same mind, of one mind. Number two, it's also by having the same love, having received the same love, of God the Father, responding to that same love by reflecting that same love, reflecting that love to God, reflecting that love to others, to all others. Jesus calling us to to love one another, to love our neighbor, and even to love our enemy and pray for those who persecute us. And number three, he says here, by being in full accord, or as the NIV translates, being one in spirit. It means living in harmony with one another. As many members of one body, we, we put this to the test in that we live in the great city of Chicago, asterisk, suburbs of Chicago, and yet we're okay with Packer fans here, guys. We love them. This side over here has some sanctification to work on. You guys just stayed silent. You were like afraid, because when I look at you, you get a little nervous, don't you? Just a little bit. And because I was looking over here, they didn't think they heard me. Reflecting the same love that we've received. Being in full accord, being in one in spirit. Right, we, are, we are many members of one body, Paul says. And that means not allowing our differences that do exist to divide us, be it our political differences, be it our cultural differences, even being our secondary and tertiary theological differences. It, it means not making our own preferences primary and recognizing that our Our unity is not found in uniformity, is it? No, it's found in embracing the beauty within our diversity, strengthened by our differences, strengthened by our uniqueness. And here's the thing. When we embrace who it is we are called to be, when we embrace our sense of of, uh, belonging and identity and purpose, that we are united in Christ as beloved children of the Father, empowered by the Spirit, living out this humility that brings about unity, that changes us, doesn't it? It changes the way that we value others, and it changes the way that we view the needs of others. And what we see here in verse 3 is that this this humility that brings about unity, it changes the way we value others. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, we inherently value certain things more than others, don't we? And and you would likely never think of trading something 
of greater value for something of lesser value. Like, like say, baseball cards, for example. Um, Andre Dawson was and is and continues to be my favorite Cubs player of all time. I can't tell you why he just is. The Hawk was awesome. And, and I remember as a kid, like, I felt like I had everybody's baseball card but his. And so I was doing anything I could to make a trade to get my first Andre Dawson card. But even as a kid, I knew that I would never, ever, ever think of trading a 1952 Mickey Mantle Tops rookie card if I had one, which today is valued at $12.6 million for my first Andre Dawson card. No level of humility would ever have led me to consider trading Mickey Mantle for Andre Dawson. None. And yet, that's exactly what Paul is calling this church to do in some sense. To trade something of near infinite value for something of next to no value? Roman culture, though, Roman culture at this time, it viewed uh, humility as, as a weakness, something to avoid. It viewed honor, on the other hand, as a, a limited resource. There was only so much honor to go around, and so the only way for you to gain more honor was to take it from someone else. Call it a Roman version of manifest destiny, if you will, in seizing honor from others. And not only that, they placed people into social classes. There were the uh, patricians at the top, the upper class, the ruling class. There were the plebeians in the middle, the working class. And then at the bottom, there were slaves. And the worth of an individual, the value of an individual within society was based on which social class they were put in with slaves having next to no value other than the labor that they were able to produce. And so Paul here, he, he, he is upending everything they knew to be true. He is subverting their cultural norms, and that instead of viewing those in a lower class as being less significant and having less value, he's calling them to humble themselves and lower themselves and count others in a lower class, not just as equals, he says, but as more significant than yourself, of greater value than you. He's calling them to lower their own status, to elevate the status of another. He's calling them to become slaves so that a slave might become free and a full-fledged citizen. And one of the things you come to learn as you read the Bible is that the word of the Bible on one hand was entirely different from ours, and on the other hand is entirely like ours. Or I should say ours like it's. Because Paul's words are no less subversive and countercultural today, are they? Living in a culture founded on a claim that all are supposedly created equal, with this supposed right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, well, many were given no rights, many were given no voice, they were given no vote, and some valued as only three-fifths of a human being. And we continue to this very day to devalue those we deem below us. We do this to individuals, we do this to people. Valuing those who agree with our beliefs more than those who bring a different perspective or a different experience. Valuing those who have succeeded more than those who continue to struggle. Valuing those who live on one side of a border more than those who live on the other side of a border. 
Valuing those who were born here more than those who have come here. Valuing our supposed rights more than the lives of those our rights infringe upon and negatively impact, even if those rights take the lives of others. And valuing our institutions more than the wrong they have done or the individuals they have harmed. And valuing the credibility of those who have been given power and a voice over those with no power and with no voice. Because see, in the end, who we value the most is ourselves. We value ourselves. We value those in our family. We value those in our tribe, however we have chosen to define that. Deeming those who are in as valuable and those who are out as expendable in our pursuit of our own good and our own well-being and our own interests without giving any thought to how our conceit and selfish ambition devalues others. That is the way of the world, but the way of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we are called to a life of humility that brings about unity, that values others not just as significant in ourselves, but as more significant than ourselves, as more valuable, meaning we are not simply pursuing equality, but pursuing equity, valuing the most vulnerable. How? By lowering ourselves so that they might be elevated, treating others, all others, regardless of who they are or what they've done, regardless of where they come from or what they might believe, with dignity and humanity and indiscriminate compassion, Brennan Manning writes in his book, Abba's Child, saying that the compassion of God in our hearts opens our eyes to the unique worth of each and every person recognizing them as a fellow human being created by God in his own image, loved by God, and valued by God. And the more we value others, the more we begin to view the needs of others and not just view the needs, but begin to seek to meet the needs of others. He goes on to say in verse four, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, here's another case of please don't hear what Paul's not saying. He's not saying we shouldn't ever look out for our own well-being, for our own needs, for our own good. It's just that we shouldn't only look out for it, but also to the interest of others, he says. Even to those you might think have little to no value, even those who you think might be deserving of the situation they found themselves in. Really, he's just calling us to live out the great commandment, isn't he? Of loving our neighbor, and loving them how? Loving them as ourselves. Looking out for their best interest and their well-being in the same way we look out for our own well-being and our own interests. We, we become so distracted, we become so consumed with our own selfish ambition that it's easy to lose sight of all the needs that exist around us, don't we? And I think we fail to see the needs of other human beings around us because we fail to see them as human beings in need. Instead, we begin seeing them as a distraction, as an inconvenience, and as a nuisance. Something that simply gets in our way at a red light when we're trying to make a right-hand turn. Yet we're not only called to value one another, as fellow image bearers, we're called to meet the needs of one another meeting each other's physical needs, 
as we do in the pantry, meeting each other's financial needs, as we do through benevolence, meeting each other's uh, emotional needs simply by providing our presence with them and meeting each other's spiritual needs, right? Pointing them to Jesus. How? Simply by loving them like Jesus. Giving a voice to the voiceless, defending the rights of the poor and needy, it says in Proverbs 31, as we love kindness and walk humbly with God, Micah says, because the way of Jesus is a way of humility that seeks the good of one another, isn't it? Okay, but how? Like, how do we, how do we, we're good with how questions, aren't we? When we really don't want to do something. How do we, how do we know what this life of humility we're called to live looks like? By looking to who? Looking to Jesus. And how do, are we enabled to live this life of humility? By following Jesus, by our being united in Christ. Look at what he says here in verse five. He says, have this mind among yourselves, have this way of thinking among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This, um, this, this mindset, this way of thinking that we are called to share in, this way of humility that brings about unity, valuing others and, and viewing and meeting the needs of others, it is the way of Jesus who is both the one who enables us to think this way and live this out, Right, sharing in the mind of Christ as his body in thinking like Jesus. He not only enables, he also is the example we follow, showing us how to think this way and how to live this out in loving like Jesus. Who, he goes on to say in verse six, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God, the Father. Amen? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's beautiful. This, this, this passage, uh, it's, it's referred to by many as it's a Christ hymn. It has this, uh, this poetic hymn-like feel to it, doesn't it? And, and it's believed to have been a creed that the early church would have read or sung when they gathered together, much like we uh, on occasion will recite the Apostles' Creed or the, or the Nicene Creed. And, and, and the Christ hymn, what it does by, by reciting and singing this regularly, it was this constant reminder of how they were to think of one another and how they were to treat one another, right? Of how they were to live among one another and love one another in the way that Jesus loved them, loving their neighbor as themselves, as they were loved. And the Christ hymn, it's got two parts here. The first is Christ's humiliation, right? His lowering, his, his coming down, followed by his exaltation, his rising, his being lifted up. And so for, let's first look at, the, at Christ's humiliation and do this with me. I want, us to, I want us to read this together as the early church would have done. So would you, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Stand with me. We're gonna read verses five through eight together. It'll be up on the screen behind me. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. You can be seated. You know, for all of eternity, long before Genesis 1-1, before the creation of the heavens and the earth, before uh, the creation of time and space, Jesus held the most privileged position as the eternal divine word of God, who was in the beginning with God as God, fully and truly God. He, he was of the same essence, the same substance, the same status as the Father, worthy of the same glory and honor and praise. But, but Jesus, he didn't view his divine status, his divine power as something to be used for his own advantage, something to be exploited for his own gain, or something to be protected at all costs or defended by any means necessary. Right? Jesus, he, he did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And rather than looking out for his own interests, he looked to the interest of others. He looked to our interests. He looked to our pain, our brokenness, our hurt. And he acted on our behalf, emptying himself. Not emptying himself of his divinity as though he set that aside and, and ceased to be truly and fully God. No, no, no. Emptying himself of his privileged status in adding humanity to his divinity, it also becoming fully and truly human. Coming to us as one of us and dwelling among us. Something that I think would be unthinkable for someone in power today. You would never think of, of a president, for example, foregoing the comfort and security of the White House and Secret Service. They would never think of uh, just getting a, an Airbnb and staying in an apartment once and getting an Uber from the airport. Because also, they ain't flying coach. Also, you give any of us Air Force One, we ain't flying coach either. It's true of a president, it's true of a CEO. Like, they're not foregoing that corner office on the top floor for that little cubicle thing you got that's like, this big anymore with somebody sitting right next to you? If you sneeze, you're getting it all over them? CEO ain't moving into that thing. Yet that's what Jesus did. He, he set it aside. He gave it all up. Jesus, he took on the form of one empty of any human glory, void of any social value, that of a slave. The least valued human being imaginable in this culture. Showing the extreme length that Jesus went to from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, and yet he went even lower. Like, don't be, don't be battling Jesus in a limbo because he will go lower than you can go. Because he didn't just die. No, he suffered the most shameful death imaginable, death on a cross. A death reserved for slaves and terrorists and insurrectionists, those with no value to society. A death perfected to prolong their shame and suffering, displaying their humiliation as a statement who those who came to watch and a warning that treason will not be tolerated. And all of this, his coming and his living in perfect obedience to the Father, his dying in our place on the cross was all done for you out of his love for you humbling himself and giving himself for you. That is the example that we are to follow. That is the humility we are called to live out. But as Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, humility is not something you can create within yourself. We don't trade 
a Mickey Mantle card for an Andre Dawson card. Rather, you look at him and you realize who he is and what he has done and why he has done it. And you are humbled. We are humbled when we come and we stand and we kneel at the foot of the cross, lowering ourselves, dying to ourselves, all for the good of others and the glory of God. That's what it looks like to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. And if the hymn ended there at verse 8, on Friday night with his dead, lifeless body still in the tomb, the gospel would cease to be a gospel. There would, there would be no good news because we would remain enslaved to sin. Death would still have its sting because Jesus, he would have been nothing more than another failed, self-proclaimed Messiah who died in pursuit of his own selfish ambition and making a name for himself, unable to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures that pointed to the Messiah, that pointed to the one who would rescue humanity and redeem creation. But the hymn doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end there because Christ's humiliation, his lowering, his, his coming down is followed by his exaltation, his rising, his being lifted up. And so uh, will you rise together with me here and let's read these last few verses. Stand with me. Let's read verses nine through 11 together. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Amen. You may be seated. The Son's humiliation is what led to and resulted in his exaltation by the Father. Right? God lifting him up out of the earth, rising from the grave, alive and ascending into heaven where he sits today at the right hand of God the Father. And then Paul does something here at the end of the Christ hymn that's fascinating. He, he, he takes something written by the prophet Isaiah at the end of chapter 45 and, and taking a passage about Yahweh as, as Lord, the one whom Isaiah says, every knee shall bow and tongue swear allegiance. And he takes this this passage of divinity and authority ascribed to Yahweh and he ascribes it to Jesus, giving him divinity, giving him authority, bestowing on the risen, exalted, extended Jesus, the name that is above every name, the name of Lord, declaring him to be the one worthy of all praise and honor and glory from all of creation, from above and within and below as the one through whom all things were created. Right? It is to Jesus that we owe our thanks and amen. His humiliation leading to our redemption, his exaltation leading to our worship and praise of him, but not just our praise, the praise of all creation. Because it is to Jesus, Paul says, that on one day, all of creation will bend the knee in submission to his authority whether they choose to or not. It is to Jesus that all of creation will confess as Lord in adoration of his glory because it is Jesus who has shown us what this humility that brings about unity looks like. It's, it's living that looks like losing its joy that's found in giving. It's laying down our lives and living for the glory of God and the good of others. It is humbling ourselves in giving honor to others. And it is Jesus who enables us to live this life, this life of humility empowered by his spirit. 
This is what it looks like to faithfully follow the way of Jesus. This is the life Christ has called you to when he says, come and follow me. This is a life that takes up our cross and bears it each and every day with each and every step as we faithfully follow him. So the question before each and every one of us this morning is, is how will you respond to this call? How you respond to who it is you have been called to be, how you respond to how it is you've been called to live, but not just you as a, as a gathering of individuals, but how will we collectively as a church, as a body, how will we respond to who we have called to be and how we have called to live? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.